Okay, Matt, a couple things that we got to put in the show notes. I'm just going to lead with that. Okay, okay. I know it's, it's just the start and everything, but a couple things we got to put in the show notes. Sacramentum Caritatis. Yes. All right. Pope Benedict XVI's letter on, on the Eucharist. On the Eucharist. Right. Sacrament of charity. That's boom. Way to go with your Latin. Yeah. Okay. Romans 12.1. Yeah. We're going to put in the whole citation. I want to put in this quote from St. Augustine because Dr. Feingold referenced it. Okay. And he says, for you, I am a bishop. With you, I am a Christian. Okay. Now, folks, that quote just thrown out there into the ether makes no sense at this exact moment, but we talk about it later on. So it's going to be really fun because today, Matthew, we had the joy of an amazing conversation with Dr. Lawrence Feingold, author of The Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion. A pretty hefty tome. It is a behemoth of a book. Yeah. <laughs> a hefty tome from I think let's academic. let's look at how many pages exactly. It's a lot. It's heavy. If, it's over 700. Remember that concussion you had? <laughs> if I hit you in the head with this book, it would give you another concussion. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. I don't know why I keep bringing that up. Because <laughs> well, cuz it's it keeps finding itself uh applicable. <laughs> it's actually only 607. But it this not is not as if that's not a lot. This is a serious book, folks. It's it's a it, it's designed really as a textbook, but I think honestly this is a book that we, that we could read. Having like, having begun, you know, the the reading process, yeah. also known as just reading. Um, <laughs> I I would say that this is <laughs> this is a book worth buying without being in a class. Right? Like yeah. I I was I'm I'm only well, I skipped around in prep for the interview, knowing what I wanted to talk about. That's more than um, I did. Fair enough. But, <laughs> I've, I've read nothing. But, <laughs> I'm not proud of this, folks. I'm just saying <laughs> I haven't actually read the book, but I had a blast talking to Dr. Feingold. Yeah, this was a... Oh, my goodness. This was a fantastic episode. There are not many times where I, I like, had a spastic attack. <laughs> we high-fived. And we high-fived mid-episode. Yeah. yeah. Um, not many high-fives on the show, folks. Um, you can't yeah, see him anyway because this is an audio-only podcast. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> so there you go. But this is this is a book worth buying. This is a book worth buying. Like, yeah. You know, like yeah. especially given what the 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 stage of the life of the church we are in. You know, knowing it is the Eucharistic revival. Right. This is a book worth buying. Yeah, and we we made reference to it several times, but I, I don't know if we hammered that point quite hard enough. In this time of Eucharistic revival, one of the best things we can do is understand as much as possible the Eucharist. Yeah. Like, study it. Let's dive into what the Eucharist really is. And I loved his, his opening question, which was, why did Jesus give us the Eucharist? And in fact, remember we were making that joke before we started recording that I like to lead off with <laughs> yeah, really, yeah. really simple questions. He, he did, did it, it for me. Yeah. I didn't have to. <laughs> he led off with why the Eucharist? See, I Which did the wrong a, thing because when I was mocking you about that, you I said, I said, what is the Eucharist? Yeah, exactly. So I didn't even ask the right simple question. <laughs> but it was such a great way to start this idea of why did Jesus do this? It's the sacrament of charity to draw us into his charity. And in this year of in time, year, 
phase what are what it what is it the second year of the three-year process yes, of eucharistic revival yes. that is going to be ongoing after that go back to the craig father craig vasek uh, episode yeah. and, and he'll tell you a little bit more Check about that, that like the, the nuts and bolts of the eucharistic revival but here dr feingold is giving us something of the theology that's behind it all and really yeah. this is the understanding of what the eucharist is what holy communion is what the mass is that we really need to dive into so so thrilled to have him here. I'm so glad he gave us that time. You're going to have to listen to this gift. one twice. That's for sure. On single speed. <laughs> <laughs> I know you guys listen on double speed. I hear you. <laughs> All right. Enjoy well, the show. Enjoy. Dr. Feingold, welcome to The Tangent. It's great to have you on today. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. So we've got your book, The Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion, which is, um, that's a big book. <laughs> it's just a, a very, very big book. It's in the uh, 700s. Yeah. yeah. Uh, impressive. And it, it looks like this is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is intended as a, as a textbook, as a manual for sacramental theology students, correct? Exactly. Yeah. I wrote it. I teach at a seminary, Kenrick Lennon Seminary in St. Louis. Oh. And this has come out of teaching this class since 2012. Wow. Okay. Awesome. So, uh, yeah. Well, the fruit of six or seven years of teaching it. And, <laughs> yeah, wow. um, I, I write course notes for all the classes I teach, but each year, um, I try and make it better. And, and the students help me by asking questions and by looks of incomprehension that show me <laughs> this needs a better explanation. And so then, when you see, when you see them confused, you know, that's you've right. got to, you've got that's to do right. some more. That's and a great my approach. Wife, my wife is also involved. She's my editor. And so her task is to make sure, likewise, she can understand it. And therefore, the reader yeah. can awesome. understand it. That's my wife's job. When I write papers for school, I have her read my, uh, my papers as well. <laughs> Mine aren't 700 pages long. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, usually they top out around 12 or 13. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, uh, please say hello to Father Shane Demon and to uh, oh, Father do. Jason Schumer. Uh, okay. I, was, I was with those guys at the NAC. Uh, in fact, in I seminary. teach this course with Father Schumer. Oh, really? I do two-thirds of it, the first part, on the, um, the dogmatic um, sacramental theology, and then he does the liturgical theology. Beautiful. Oh, I love that idea. I love that combination. Now, th that's an important point. So when we talk about the Eucharist, uh, and here we're in the midst of the Eucharistic revival, and so this is a, a great time for us to be talking about the Eucharist and to be getting into some of the theology that's behind it, but we, it's hard to separate the theology, the sacramental theology, from the liturgical aspect of it, even though we, we can, we can, we can make mm -hmm. the distinctions, but I mean, when is it that we encounter the Eucharist? Most of all, as Catholics, it's at mass. Right. Exactly. Uh, that's the place where we're most likely to encounter the Eucharist. If you uh, have been introduced to things like Eucharistic adoration, you have an adoration chapel readily available to you. You might stop in for, for visits. Um, but our, our main point of contact with the Eucharist is in the context of mass. So having that that liturgical component, I think, is that sounds like a really yeah. interesting way to approach uh -huh. the course. Can I butt in there? So of course. my goal in teaching this is so that the seminarians and all lay people, all lay Catholics who want to read it, um, can experience Mass more profoundly. Right? That's, and then my, the seminarians offer Mass in the future um, with a deeper um, entrance into the mystery. Mm. Right, it always remains mystery, but we can go deeper into that mystery, and um, uh, that's the purpose 
of this book and the corresponding course that's at Emmaus Academic. Mm. I was I was teaching a course on ecclesiology once, and uh, it was to our, our permanent deacon class. So these are the guys preparing for permanent deacon. And one of them asked me uh, at, at one point in one of the, the classes, he said, Father, this is all great, but how are we supposed to talk about this in a homily? <laughs> and I said, well, you're not. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, this particular stuff that we're talking about, this isn't homily material. This would be boring. Uh, you, you'd, you'd lose people's interest. But this is this is the foundational stuff. This is the stuff that is is the... All everything that you're going to preach about, especially when the, the subject of the church comes up, when we need to talk about how the Holy Spirit guides the church and does these things, this is foundational knowledge for how all of those other things that you will preach about are, are going to go into it. Right. When when you're teaching these these courses on mm-hmm. the Eucharist, where do you see the the applicability most of all for <laughs> for homiletics uh, versus the stuff that you need to know about this? But this probably isn't going to come up. Uh, in your in your average Sunday Mass homily. <laughs> uh, actually, I do hope very much that this will come up in their Sunday Mass homilies. Mm. That's my dream. And in fact, that's the way, um, you don't have to know this to read the book, but um, what I at the end of every chapter, there's a series of study questions. And my idea for them is that um, they provoke thought, but for the future priests, they can also um, serve as things to to explain um, in preaching. And so my exams for the seminarians are all oral exams in which they basically preach or teach an adult faith formation on, say, why did Jesus institute the Eucharist? Um, the, the real presence, the sacrifice of the mass, etc. How it's prefigured in the Old Testament. Um, yeah, so I very much think it needs to be preached, the Eucharist, and it needs to be preached in a way that's always looking at the why question. Why did Jesus institute it? And that means, how is this coming out of Jesus's love for me and for his church as the bridegroom? And so basically, that's the way this whole book and the whole course is, is um, centered. Um, so I start in the first chapter with, why did Jesus institute the Eucharist? And in order to understand that question, we have to think of Jesus as the bridegroom. And therefore, the Eucharist is the sacrament of the love of Jesus, the bridegroom. And so that's a, a traditional name for the Eucharist is sacrament of charity. And Pope Benedict wrote a beautiful apostolic exhortation with that title, sacrament of charity. And so thinking of the charity spousal love helps us to understand what is spou- how do spouses express love? Well, spouses share life together, right? So that's a first fundamental reason for the Eucharist. Jesus, and that's a reason for the incarnation, right? He took our flesh and our life so as to share life with us. But he ascended out of this world 1,990 years ago, right? With his visible, tangible flesh. And so the Eucharist is reflecting that desire of the bridegroom to continue to dwell with us, and in fact, in a better way, in a way here with us, wherever his bride is. I was just, I'm, I'm at my office at the seminary, and just down the hall and up the stairs is Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, right? And it's easy to take that for granted for us Catholics, right? But that's, that's a key part of the bridegroom's desire to be encountered. But it's not all. Spousal love involves sacrifice, right? As anybody who's married knows, um, <laughs> m- m- marital love involves sacrificing oneself 
far more one, than one ever, you know, dreamed of um, in making the marriage vows. And that's the glory of marriage, is that um, all of those opportunities that the Lord gives us to um, sacrifice ourselves for our beloved spouse and children. Um, and so, likewise, the Eucharist, it makes sense, is um, also his sacrifice. But his sacrifice made available to us so that mm -hmm. we can participate in it. And so that we can offer to his father the same sacrifice that he offered um, 2,000 years ago, Mis made present in mystery. And then a third thing that spouse that spousal love, the culminating thing, is total self-gift to one's spouse, right? And of course, we spouses can't do that perfectly, right? We're, that's what marriage is about, but we fall short. And Jesus into the Eucharist so that it could be a total gift of self to each one of the members of his bride, the church, right? And that's the mystery of Holy Communion. So that's how I structure the book, um, presence, sacrifice, and communion, as responding to the, the why question and as three aspects of Christ's spousal love as the bridegroom. I love that idea of going into the why. Why did Jesus do this? I think very often we know that Jesus did this mm -hmm. at, at mass. It is, this is what Jesus did. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to tell you what, what the Lord did. This is how he did it. Uh, these are the words that, that he spoke. And in fact, we know that during mass, he's doing it. Uh, he is, he is really offering himself to us at, at every mass, but this idea of why did Jesus do this and bringing it into that context of spousal love is, is very powerful. Because then it, you're right; it becomes that model for all spousal love. Right. Uh, every every spouse, every every human, every human being mm -hmm, is right. called into this. It's it's not only those who are married, because exactly. obviously a, a priest is called also to make the total gift of self. Uh, religious is called to, those in consecrated life called to give that make that total gift of self. But here we see that yeah, the why, why right. because we cannot make that total gift on our own. We, and we certainly cannot do it perfectly, but here's the model. Here's, here's the way. And then here's also the, the strength that will be necessary. Here's the, right. the gift, the sacramental grace that will be needed for us to, to make that gift. It's scriptural too, because Ephesians 5 is love your wife the way Christ mm -hmm. loved the church. Right. Right. And so you see that connection with the, sacrifi the sacrificial element you know, in the Eucharist and in the spousal yeah. love that Christ, well, I guess St. Paul through Christ, right? But right. St. But <laughs> Paul instructed, you know, for us to follow. So it's very interesting. Um, something that struck me when I was reading through this was the, the concept of participation. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I know that participation, so, so I was reading chapter seven, which is the, the, the Protestant objections. Okay. Um, and it seemed, like, it seemed like underlying all of it was just that they don't recognize that we are called to participate, participate in salvation. Right. Um, but really, it jogged my my thoughts to well, how do I, per as a lay person, right, who's who's sitting in the pew, and standing and kneeling, how do I participate in the holy sacrifice of the mass, right? Because obviously right. my role is so different, right, than than fathers here. But even you know you're instructing seminarians, right? But but what would you say to a lay person? Yeah, I would say the same thing. So I have a chapter. So here, let me. Lay this out. I have a chapter on this 
it's chapter 10 in the book. Okay. And in the course on Emmaus Academic, yeah, there's a talk. Uh, one Read of the, the talks whole book next time, Matt. <laughs> and, um, so, yes, obviously, there's a difference in the two priesthoods. There's right. the ministerial priesthood and the common priesthood. Mm -hmm. And the priest, the ministerial priest alone is offering in the person of Christ. And the common priesthood is offering in the person of the bride. All right, so, yes, that's a non-negotiable difference that um, the Second Vatican Council lays out beautifully in um, Lumen Gentium 10. Am I getting that wrong? Um, and um, But what we're offering is the same Jesus, priest and people. And so um, the Second Vatican Council in numerous documents mm -hmm. um, lays out precisely this charge. So the, the most famous text is Lumen Gentium 11. That's the most quoted text, I think, from the Second Vatican Council that speaks of the Eucharist as source and summit. And then it goes on um, so that that all the lay faithful are to be, offer Christ to the Father and themselves with him. And in another document on the priesthood, Presbyterorum, Presbyterorum Ordinus 5, so the document on, on priests, mm -hmm. it says that priests have a profound duty to instruct the faithful precisely about this, that their role to offer God the Son to God the Father in the Mass and to offer ourselves with him. So let me, So what, what's that about? At first hearing, that might sound totally strange. And I, I mean, think, I know that the first time I had ever heard something like this, it, mm -hmm. I think it was fairly daunting, yeah. you know? Wait, yeah. what, do you, what do you mean what you I'm supposed to offer myself with Christ? Yeah, it's a tall order. <laughs> uh, right. But he's... So, <laughs> anyway. But I think most of the faithful, if you tell them that, they're going to say, what? Right. I've never heard that before. And so Vatican II gave that as a, um, a charge a, to all priests to instruct. So I'm taking this back to um, preaching on the Eucharist. I think that that needs to be preached on much more than it is, because this enables me to bring, um, to make mass not just one hour on Sunday morning, but to make the whole of my life Eucharistic. I think that's gigantic. And this is, I think, what we ought to be aiming at in the Eucharistic revival. Mm. And of course, the Eucharistic revival can't just be one year or two years, right? It's got to be um, something that the church does always. But it will set our sights too low, I think, if we just focus on something as, as fundamental as the real presence, as fundamental as that is. But we mm. want to also bring to it the idea of a Eucharistic life or Eucharistic spirituality. Let me take this a step back. So, Jesus, so it goes back to what we were saying about spousal love involving sacrifice. All right. So Jesus instituted the Eucharist, I think, again, not by chance, but the night before he made his sacrifice for his bride, right? Precisely so that that gift of self to the Father for us wouldn't eh, simply pass into history, but before he offered it, he found a way of giving it to us, his bride, so that we can live it 
and make it our way of relating to the Father every day of our lives. All right, so that's so the Mass is Christ's gift of his sacrifice to his bride. All right, if if Christ is giving that sacrifice to his bride, he's giving it so that all the members of his bride can join in his offering. All right? But, so that'd be the first part of that. So we're called to offer him to the Father. And I like to think, what, what does that mean, to offer Jesus to the Father? I mean, it, it means, I think, above all, to thank him for offering mm. himself for me and for everyone. And so that's our the very name Eucharist means thanksgiving. Oh, right. Right? And so it's we're offering it to the Father. So the priest alone is offering in the person of Christ. Right? We're offering in the person of the bride thanking our head right. for giving himself for us to the Father on Calvary and for letting us join in it in this sense. So Action, on, on Good Friday, Mary was there, right? And John was there. And we know maybe John wasn't entirely realizing what was going on, but Mary did, right? She was there at the foot of the cross understanding what was happening, that her son wasn't merely you know, being executed, but was offering himself to the Father for the redemption of the world. And therefore, she stood there co-offering. Right, so going back to what you said earlier about this having to do with, um, so Protestant objections not realizing the role of our cooperation. All right, Calv on Calvary there was a a principal offerer, Jesus, our head, mm -hmm. and there was a co-offerer, Mary, his mother, and then a, a less perfect co-offerer, John, right, and Mary Magdalene and Mary of Clopas, and. Um, and Mary, so Jesus wants the, Mary is the model of the church and the mother of the church. And what she was doing on Calvary as our mother, he wants us to do as well, right? To, to stand at the foot of the cross and to offer him to the Father, right? But we weren't there, right? And so the Eucharist is, we could say, the answer to a kind of a divine problem that only the divine wisdom could resolve. And that is how some event that takes place on one particular day in the middle of human history could be an event that all of us could participate in as if we were there, right? And the mass gives us this opportunity to be there like Mary. Now notice, Mary was doing two things without thinking about it. She was only thinking about one thing, and that was her son's sacrifice, right? Which she was co-offering to the Father by thanking him for having not come down from the cross, right? Mm. As he was tempted to do by the bystanders, right? If you're really the Son of God, come down from the cross, right? And so he doesn't come down. And she was offering that uh, um, sacrifice with him. And of course, that meant that she was offering herself because he was her whole life, right? So Mary's heart was offered with her son's offering, right? Because she loved him as no one else could, being his mother, right? And the perfect mother of such a son. So we can't enter into that, right? I can't do that at Mass. But I'm called to try to do that, right? As is every 
each one of us. And, and so she simultaneously offered her son to the father and herself with him. And we need to do the same, right? So, I, so if I go to Mass and I'm offering Jesus to the Father, how could I not offer my desires, my hopes, my dreams, my loves, my, um, in, my very recognition of my insufficiency, right? In other words, all of what's wanting um, and my desire that that... So we offer our hearts with him. And that makes sense because he's the head of the mystical body and we're the pinky or the little toe, right, of, of his body. And Jesus doesn't want to be offered in the Mass as a you know, decapitated head. He wants to be offered by the whole body himself. So again, that's where it's not enough that the ministerial priest, it's, yes, it's absolutely essential. Without right. the ministerial priest, there's no Mass <laughs> because there would be no one speaking in the person of Christ. But without the body present, it would, again, it would be an incomplete offering, a severed head. Right. It seems to me that's the key, too, like recognizing that we are the mystical body of Christ. Because we are the mystical body of Christ, which, which Christ himself calls us, you know? Paul, I don't know if he actually fell off a horse. People love to say that Paul fell off a horse, but there's no horse in the actual scriptures, my understanding. Yeah. Right? But... But he was just going Jesus, to Damascus. Just, he could have been horses. walking is the yeah, point. Exactly. But but the real point, actually, is that <laughs> Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Right? So Jesus is the one who has associated himself with us. Like this isn't something that that we said, hey, look, we're the mystical body of Christ. Therefore, we must offer ourselves with him. It's that Jesus associated himself with me. Right? And if he associated himself with me, that means I have been drawn into him and like it, it's kind of like it completely follows that I have to be offered with him if I want to have that communion with him. It's like the natural next step, you know, that and 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 I think even further because I'm you're sitting here and, and it's like you're preaching a homily. It's great. Right. <laughs> we'll but, take it. <laughs> yeah. I needed one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm saying to myself, this would be so this is so hard because it demands that I conform myself to him. Like I like I'm yeah. feeling challenged. Okay. Saying like this this is so difficult. I now at mass, like I have to like like I'm gonna offer him at all and it's not gonna come close, but I sure as heck gotta try and resemble him. Yeah, mm -hmm. right, right. You know? That's right. So Well, and I think the the posture of Mary is so important because Mary at the foot of the cross, she she is interiorly completely focused on Jesus who is her whole life, who is her whole world, exactly like you said. But then her, her posture is, is one of presence. She's there. She doesn't move from the foot of the cross and she's adoring. And so she's, she's, and then I guess we could add a third that she's listening because it's from the cross that Jesus addresses her woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. So she's, she's, she's present. She's, she showed up and then she adores Jesus and then she also is able to hear his voice as he speaks to her from the cross, which I think is actually the, the fundamental part. When the Second Vatican Council talks about full, conscious, and active participation of all the faithful, um, full, conscious, and active participation has, and this has been said thousands and thousands of times by people much more eloquent than, than I am, but that doesn't mean doing stuff. 
full conscious active participation doesn't mean that you have like a special job or a special task assigned to you. Full conscious and active participation means that you are present, you are adoring, and and you are listening to what it is that Jesus wants to give to you. Mm-hmm. And then look at John. I think John's the the other great example because it's hard to try to imitate the Blessed Mother, you know, immaculately conceived, never sinned. Uh, it's it's hard, right? <laughs> I'm just saying there's an unfair advantage. Exactly, <laughs> okay. exactly. You know, but there's John at the foot uh-huh. of the cross, and when Jesus says, "Son, behold your mother," he takes her into his home. Right, and so he takes into his home for the rest of his life. Uh, the the one who who gave us Christ he he takes into his into his home uh, and therefore into his into his own heart that bond uh, of of filial relationship mm-hmm. uh, and then you know there's there's that mystical way in which he's also then participating in what Christ is offering so there's this this entering into something completely different by virtue of him also being present at the cross at the foot of the cross uh, and I think that's that's such an important an, an important thing for us to understand is as we go to mass, I mean, Dr. Feingold, is, mm. as you're talking about the the importance of the the faithful being present, the body. You're you're bringing to mind for me the experience of celebrating mass during the quarantine portion uh-huh. of the pandemic. Yeah, and so live streaming a mass every day for an empty chapel. Uh-huh. That's and, no... and not being allowed to have have people there. <laughs> right, that must um, be no fun. It was it was but... no fun at all, and you know. I say mass on on my own every once in a while. Mm-hmm. You know, if if I don't have a, a scheduled public mass mm-hmm. or a funeral, I don't mind celebrating a private mass. Right. In fact, sometimes a private mass can be very very peaceful mm-hmm. and almost a relief. I don't have to give a homily. I'm not going to preach to myself. I don't want to hear myself. I, <laughs> I hear myself enough. Uh, but there there can be a real gift in in stepping into that that private mass. But then in other ways, there's something missing. Right, and so maybe after those first two weeks, they told us two weeks to flatten the curve, and that didn't happen. Uh, and so there, there we are, going into the second month of mm-hmm. mass with no congregation, uh, just a camera in front of me as I'm as I'm at the altar. And I, I remember just having this one day where I I don't want this. Right. And it was hard to actually go up to the altar that day. I I didn't want to do it because I, I was just so tired of of saying mass for no one. Um, and then God gave me this gift the next day, uh, when I went into the chapel, there were these two people who I knew and they were sitting <laughs> in the back and they're a married couple and they're sitting in the back. And I was like, I'm not supposed to have anybody here. <laughs> and they said, can we please stay? I said, you can stay as long as you don't make any noise. Don't say any of the responses. <laughs> and so I said mass <laughs> and they were, they stayed for mass and then they left. And it was the greatest thing to have these two people sitting in the back of the church, uh, like just quietly there. But it was finally, I, I, I had a congregation. I wasn't supposed to. Right. And I'm now admitting it freely because I just don't care anymore. But <laughs> yeah. I stopped caring. But we, it was it was a really difficult time. And I think uh, we don't need to give criticisms too much here. I think the Cardinal Dolan very beautifully said that he's looking back at, at all of the the pandemic restrictions and everything and regretting a lot of that, right. that we, we kept people away from the mass. And I think yeah. he's, I think he's absolutely right. I fully regret everything that we had to do for that, that we, that we didn't have people at mass. Um, and that for such a long time, it was, that was, that was prevented. But I think about it, it, it did two things. I think for, for my own approach to the mass uh, first, it was, there was that, that pain of, of just not having anybody, so, but it made me appreciate more 
the value of of the congregation. Like I came to a much deeper sense of of why it matters to have people for whom I am celebrating the mass, uh, who are physically present. Every mass has an intention, you know. So I'm, I'm right, celebrating right, right, right. mass for something, but to have have people really there and knowing that they're they're sharing in the graces, that has become a, a much greater value for me, and I, I appreciate that. The other thing it did was it, it made me never ever want to give up my role as the priest of distributing communion. Uh huh. Uh, I I am very jealous of that responsibility now, mm-hmm. far Beautiful. more than I than I was before, <laughs> uh, and so I will. Yeah, uh, at, at my parish we we distribute communion, uh, the the priest or the deacon, uh, together, and that's that's it. And uh-huh. I I will not go back to you know oh, that, when I was sorry. first. Yeah, I think that's excellent. When I was first ordained in the parish, uh, sometimes if if there was a an extra, it's going to sound bad, an extra extraordinary minister, mm-hmm. um, the the priest would would just sit out and let them distribute. I'm like, yeah. no, for three months I wasn't allowed to give communion to anybody. Uh, that will be the only time in the, for the rest of my life that right. I'm I'm not giving communion. Like I have right. to do this, and I think that was where the we're talking about that spousal union, uh-huh. right? Of of bride and 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 bridegroom, uh, as as the priest, as the one who has to act in the person of Christ. I, I realized I I cannot I cannot fail to offer, and when I'm offering the Eucharist, when I'm giving people communion, there's there's a way in which I think. And maybe, maybe we could talk about this a little bit. When the priest distributes communion, so there's the offering that he makes acting in persona Christi. Is there a way that as the priest is, is giving the body of Christ to people, to the people in Holy Communion, that it's not only Christ the bridegroom giving himself to the people, but could there also be a way in which the priest as, as pastor, as shepherd is... Not in the same way, but somehow giving himself to the people also? Yeah, absolutely. Pope Francis has spoken about that in Desiderio Desideravi. Oh. I don't have the quote present in my All mind. All right. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, he has a beautiful reflection. Mark, that is the first time I ever accidentally quoted Pope Francis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful reflection precisely. He's speaking about priestly spirituality. Mm. And how that priestly spirituality is pre- configuration with Christ in the whole of his self-giving. And therefore, that includes um, giving of communion and your giving of yourself, right, to your parish, to the people of God. So, so absolutely, I would agree. I'd like to go back a little, if I could, to what you Please. said before that. Of course. So, yeah, I had a similar experience during um, coronavirus time of um, st- you know, watching mass on the computer in our basement, and we set up a little God corner in the basement. <laughs> and right, so a crucifix in the corner with a, a, a kneeler, word of God, and a live stream mass. But so the, here's the problem that Jesus instituted the Eucharist so that our encounter, right, with, with Jesus and his Father would not just be in my God corner. Right, but he instituted the Eucharist so that we could enter into um, his self-gift in with a presence. Right, so that's that first piece: presence, sacrifice, and communion. And the presence is the foundation of a of the other two. Right, and so it's not the same. Yes, without if Jesus hadn't instituted the Eucharist, all of the faithful should do everything they do for the glory of God. 
I, today's feast of St. Ignatius. Um, so whether you eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. But it's, and that I can do in my God corner, my basement. But what I can't do in my basement is offer myself in physical presence of Jesus's self-offering as Mary did standing at the foot of the cross, right? It's not the same, Mary at the foot of the cross or Peter, I don't know, um, in his house or something. Right. Um, and so that presence enables this self-offering to, um, again, it's head and members together, right? Yes. And that's so beautiful. beautiful. And what's yeah. and this is why it needs to involve a parish so that it be head and members, members not isolated as islands, but members precisely as um, an ecclesial communion, Right? And again, that's really beautiful. And we tend, we're living in an individualistic side. We tend not to see that. Um, to offer myself with all of the other members and we complement each other, right? Because what I, so what each one offers insofar, right, as I'm offering myself as the pinky, I need the, you know, the other fingers. I need the, the legs and the feet. And so each of us offer our particular gift that nobody else can give, which is our particular life, our personality, our temperament, our situation, our weaknesses, right? Our failings, as well as our dreams and hopes and desires. And everyone complements one another in this, the mystical bride, right? And so it's so beautiful that we do that together and not just separately, and that we do it above all together with Jesus, right? Who's made present the altar. So I think there was a huge, and so that would be the first and most important thing, glorifying the Father. But then there's a second thing, and that is it's reasonable to think that more graces come down. So every mass is offered for the whole world, right? Um, it's offered for the intention that you um, offer it for, right? That particular intention. Mm -hmm. But it also um, for all of those who are participating in the offering, right? And that's the ministerial priest and all of the, the lay faithful who are present um, as in their common priesthood. And then for all of their intentions, right? And therefore, if more, if I'm present at Mass and participating with that full active um, conscious participation that we spoke about, um, it's reasonable to think more fruits of grace are going to come down to the world, right? So mm. if it's just you, Father, yes, that's magnificent. It still is being offered for the whole world, and grace is coming to the whole world because of that offering. But if I'm there too, and you're there, and Matt, and, and all of us in the parish are there, far more graces, because we're all going to be bringing our, the desires of our heart, and Jesus won't leave that unanswered. The Father won't leave that unanswered, right? And so, insofar as mass attendance is, re you know, is restricted, either, you know, in coronavirus because of health reasons or simply because of laziness, I'm not there because I'm watching football or something, um, the whole world is uh, not receiving a grace. Now, at first sight, that might seem crazy, right? Because it, God wants to give grace more than I want him to give grace. Why would he make his graces dependent on our participating? But it, we should think, yes, because he's made us real participants and cooperators. Yeah. The grace is not less. The grace is offered. But for me to receive it, I have to show up. I have to want That's the right. grace. But, if I don't show yeah. up, if I don't want the grace, <laughs> right, then yeah. the grace is there. It's waiting for me. But I'm just holding back for whatever. Right. Maybe I'm, I'm. I just don't feel like it or something. You know. Right. But it, how can also, I receive that grace? Sorry, but the the beauty of the mass 
the mass is different than other sacraments. So baptism yeah. only benefits the baptized, right? right? The grace of baptism. But because the Eucharist is sacrament and sacrifice, right? So Holy Communion is gonna benefit those who receive it. But the sacrifice of the mass is offered for the whole world, right? And so that's gonna benefit the whole world. But it's reasonable if I'm participant, right? If I'm there like Mary at the foot of the cross, um, so Mary's maternity was enlarged, right? That's so when Jesus said to her, "Woman, behold your son," right? And we see ourselves included there, right? Her maternity was enlarged to the whole world, and so our being present in the offering enables us to enlarge our spiritual fatherhood, right? If we're men, or spiritual motherhood, if we're women. And so this is, I mean, we're just used to thinking of Sunday mass obligation as if it's some obligation, right? That I, the church is imposing on me, but it's, it's the Sunday mass glory, right? It's the Sunday mass um, unthinkable privilege of being able to join in the offering of Calvary, of the sacrifice on Calvary for the whole world and for the glory of the Father. Yeah. And so then if, if the Eucharist, the Mass in particular, benefits far more than just the individual receiving communion, but benefits really truly the whole world that grace is, is given, I mean, we might look at something like holy orders, the sacrament of holy orders. It, it's going to benefit the world because this priest now has been mm -hmm. has been sent out to do this, but it's it's not quite the same until that priest has said mass, right? right? And then it's because there's a priest who can say mass, but it's it's still the mass that's the source through which uh, that's right. being offered because the individual priest doesn't really matter. It could be it could be me saying mass, it could be the bishop saying mass, it could be some other priest saying mass. As long as a priest is saying uh -huh. mass, the mass is is happening. The graces of the mass are happening. The, those that gift of of grace is being poured out. But then as you're talking about this, that there's a, a participation in it. Uh, there's a way that that love of God is, is mm -hmm. being manifested to the world then through the people who have received, th through the people who have been present, who are, who are there. Right. Then to the people who are co-offering. Yes, exactly. So then that, that capacity for, for love, that capacity for, for grace, for maternity, for, for paternity, th these things are enlarged and, and given more. Then it would seem like marriage then becomes the other sacrament by which we can see that grace being poured out to the world in such a powerful way, right? In the sacrament of marriage, as, as husband and wife become a living witness, I mean, Matt, you and Renee, you guys are, are the, the living embodiment of the Eucharist then. No pressure, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. Right. Yeah, so Pope Benedict makes that connection in Sacramentum Caritatis between the Eucharist and and living marriage. And that's why, again, uh, marriage and the Eucharist are two mysteries that go so intimately together. Well, let me pick up one more thing. So it seems to me there was a lost opportunity, a lost teaching moment during the pandemic. And it was, we spoke to the faithful. So there was a positive thing. We spoke to the faithful about spiritual communion. Right? And a lot of people had never heard that phrase, and now it's become something that people are familiar with, um, which is great. But there's something that we didn't say, and that is spiritual offering. And that is the, the Mass isn't just a receiving, but it involves two directions, ascending and descending. 
So the ascending is joining in the offering. And the descending is receiving Jesus in Holy Communion. And so the Mass is the union of those two in a kind of dynamic way. Mm. Um, and so it's not just making a spiritual communion of wanting to receive Jesus. That's great, absolutely. But even first, I want to offer myself. But the problem is I realize it's my poor self, right? Like you were saying before, Matt, that's intimidating. And so that's why the two have to go together. Yes, I offer my poor self and I receive him so that I can be strengthened in living the Christian life so that I can offer myself better next week yeah. and throughout life. And so... Um, yeah, we should, I think we need, it's part of, many people probably say this in if they pray a morning offering. Yeah. But they don't realize it, right? And part of that more offering is offering oneself and all one's, right? It's joys, joys and difficulties. Yeah, joys, work, sufferings, and uh, oh, joy, work, suffering, and prayers. Is it prayers? Yeah, and we can just that put is, in everything yeah, in yeah. the Christian life. Uh-huh. Yeah. In union with all the masses being offered in the world. And the... Yes, and that's good to do in the morning when you wake up, but it's even better to do it um, if you're present at Mass, right? That's that's the meaning, the most profound meaning of our full participation because it's full. So it can't be a full participation if I'm, my participation is just being a lector. That's a great thing, right? But that's not full because that doesn't involve the whole of my life. Right. Mm. And so it only is full if I'm bringing the whole of my life. Pope Benedict has a whole section of his document on the Eucharist, Sacramentum Caritatis, on this. It's the third part. So it's, it's a beautiful document um, from 2007. And the first part is the mystery, kind of the, the dogma, what we believe in about the Eucharist. The second part is the celebration. But the third part is how do we live it? And I think that's what we want need to focus on in a Eucharistic revival. How can I live this? And so he s spends a lot of time speaking about bringing one's whole life to the Eucharist. And he quotes St. Paul, Romans um, 12, 1, which speaks of, um, so St. Paul exhorts us, um, the, he exhorts the Romans, but obviously all Christians, to offer our bodies as a spiritual sacrifice. Offer your body, he says. And so obviously there's a connection between my body and Christ's body being offered in the Eucharist, right? And again, he's the head of a mystical body that includes me and you. And so um, the Father's Church loved that line from Romans, mm. and they connect it with our royal priesthood, right? And they, so we've been given this charge to offer our body. So what does that mean, to offer my body? Well, Pope Benedict says it means all that I do in my body. And that is precisely a worship that's not disincarnate, right? That's not merely angelic, but a worship that involves our joys as well as our struggles, right? All the whole fabric of Christian life. And so our prayers, our works. So my professional work, all right, for me, that, that might be easier because my professional work is theology and teaching seminaries, but it, <laughs> it, it applies to all work, right? Precisely because work has a sacrificial dimension after the fall. And that can be really helpful to think of, I'm doing this and I'm putting it on the altar. I like to use, I think we need to use our imagination here, right? Mm -hmm. To help and help the faithful imagine. So I like to imagine putting stuff on the altar and piling up mm. and thinking it's not gonna break no matter how much I put there, but the problem is I don't put enough. Right, wow. and I think yeah. most of us we don't put enough, and 
we want to put, yeah, our our work, our our joys, but even our dreams for so many other people. In in his book Priest for the Third Millennium, Cardinal Dolan uh, shares a story about when he was uh, a young priest in St. Louis. He was asked to give a conference to a men's group or something, and it snowed the night of the conference, and only four guys showed up. But he gave the talk anyway, and then. A couple of years later, he gets called from another parish that he was at. He gets called to the hospital. He goes to the hospital, and there's a man there whose wife is dying, and uh, he anoints the the woman as as she's dying, and he's talking to to her husband, uh, who said, "Well, Father, I just every day I go to mass and I place her on the paten with the host that the oh, priest beautiful. is offering." And so I just I just put her there on the paten, and Dolan said. That's such a beautiful idea. How did how did you ever come to that? Because you're absolutely right. That's what we have to do. That's how we join our, our offerings to the to the mass. How did you do that? He goes, Well, I was at that talk that you gave in the snowstorm. <laughs> he said he had no recollection of ever seeing this man before in his entire life. And this talk that he gave to four people made this huge wow. impact on him that this man in a in a moment of real need was able to offer his wife but that i i think that idea of we all have something to offer we all have something that we can that we can right. give right i Only think, that man could have offered his love for his spouse right because that's his personal exactly exactly it's the gift that only he can offer it's the thing right. that only he can pray about that's why it's it's colossians 1:24 that paul rejoices in his sufferings cuz he's making up for what is lacking and mm-hmm. the afflictions of Christ. Yeah. Right. right. Because it's, it's, this is what only that man can offer. Right. That's right. It's right. what's most what's, personal. What's lacking in Christ's suffering? Mine from, from me. Right. Yeah. Uh, do you guys Excellent. know Downton Abbey? Are, are you familiar I, honestly, with, with the do. Downton Abbey I show do. here? Okay. Yeah, so I'm I, not, don't spoil it. I'm only on like <laughs> season three. Oh, okay. Oh, man. Okay, spoil it. You I'm, can spoil I'm, it. I have I'm, to spoil I'm, it because yeah. I'm sorry. Further behind. This, <laughs> this show is it's been out for long enough that you should have caught up. Yeah, on. you're right. There's this beautiful scene where, uh, la 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 la. <laughs> la. <laughs> no, what, there's there's a servant who enlists in in the army during World War One. Uh, he's killed in action, or he's he dies as a result of injuries sustained in in a battle. Uh, but just before he dies, he marries one of his fellow servants. I already know this. Uh, he, yeah, he, he yeah. wants to marry her, so he marries Daisy, uh, and and then his father starts coming around and wants to have a connection with Daisy. The, like this this young man's father wants to make sure that she's taken care of. Wants to make sure that that she has uh, that he has a relationship because he said, "My son loved you, and I don't have him here anymore, but he loved you." And so I want to share in that. I, I want to help take care of you. I, I want to be here for you. And she visits him one day and, and they're, they're having this conversation. And she says, I don't understand why, why you care so much. And he said, well, I don't have anybody left in my life. And if I don't have you, I'll have no one to pray for. Wow. It's this beautiful line in a show that is not especially religious. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> you know, in yeah. fact, there's another scene where one of the one of the rich ladies is is caught praying in her room. <laughs> she kneels down by her bed and she's praying, and her sister walks in the room and says, "Were you praying?" Like, <laughs> like it's a, it's a mocking thing. But he, here he says, "If I don't have you in my life, who would I pray for? I don't have anybody else. Who will I pray for?" And then to realize that, yeah, there's that. There's, there's something that I alone can offer on behalf of the people in my life. You know, when I go to the altar and when I, when I pray, uh, I'm the only one who can pray for this person in that way. Right. You can 
Only mm-hmm. you can pray for Renee the way that you would pray right. for her as her husband, because right. you're the only husband she has. Right, or my son as his father. Right, exactly. Exactly. Right, and there's that's and my understanding there's a special father blessing, right? It's yeah. Like, it, which it sounds legalistic, but it's not. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's no, because it, that's a relationship that right. God has brought about in right. us. Yeah. So something that, um, and this is going back approximately twenty minutes. Um, <laughs> something that rewind, that folks, struck, just so you refresh your memory. Me. But what we were, we're talking, talking about, about Mary underneath the cross. And so I, the the question that I originally wanted to ask was, what role does Marian devotion play in Eucharistic devotion? Mm. So feel free to answer that as well. But what I really want to ask is what role does consecration to Jesus through Mary, you know, play in offering things to Jesus? Oh, fantastic. That is a great question. Yeah. So let me just, obviously the two dimensions go right. They're so well together, right? right. They're, They're connected. Catholic, right? Typically Catholic <laughs> yeah. devotions, right? To Mary and to the Eucharist. And they can't just be these two separate things. They're intimately connected. And we see that above all by Mary at the foot of the cross. And then another thing we can think is Mary's life after Pentecost. What would it have been like, right? She, tradition speaks of her going to Ephesus with John. Well, that didn't happen right away. That would have, she might have lived some 20 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. What was her life like? It would have been a Eucharistic life. In other words, so she's the model of what it means to have full, active, conscious participation in the Eucharist, right? She's the un... I don't think I've ever thought about Mary going to Mass. Well, yeah, we should. I've, right? I've never thought of... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I love this idea. Yeah. We're, we're so going bring, back bring and this forth to mass in our chairs you. right now. Can I don't you, know if you can, can see Can you that. imagine being the priest who has to say Mass for the Blessed Mother? Yeah, John, <laughs> right? So, again, how this would have helped John to be able to write his gospel, Yeah. right? celebrating the Eucharist with Mary every day, right, of their lives. Um, wow. Yeah, that is spectacular. So John Paul II has, this is not a, you know, my thought, John Paul II um, makes this the conclusion of his Ecclesia de Eucharistia. And Pope Benedict likewise ends with it. She's the model in the, at the end of Pope Benedict's Sacramentum Caritatis of mm. living the Eucharistic life. And it's precise. So John Paul II, kind of fleshes out. What would she have received when she received communion, right, as John is celebrating the Mass? The same Jesus that she received at the Incarnation, right? And as he was nine months in her womb, all right, he's only 10 minutes in her every communion. But it's the same Jesus, the same heart that beat in unison with hers during the nine months of her pregnancy. But even more, she would have been offering the same sacrifice she offered on Good Friday, right? She offering the same, um, and so she would have been reliving the Annunciation and Good Friday in every Mass. Wow. And of course, she would be receiving her glorious Son, and so she would have been reliving Easter Sunday in every Mass, right? And we could throw the ascension in there too, right? She's receiving her glorious son who's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so the Eucharist contains all the mysteries of Christ's life because it's himself, right? It's Jesus himself. And Mary 
would have been reliving all of those mysteries. And so we can see immediately the connection, say, with praying the rosary and living that devotion to the rosary, right? which centers looking at the mysteries of Jesus' life precisely from Mary's point of view. Again, John Paul II has a marvelous document on the rosary where he speaks of praying the rosary that way, right, as living it, um, the mysteries seen through Mary's eyes, right? And that's a beautiful way, I think, of going to Mass, wanting to ask Mary spiritually, again, use our imagination, ask Mary to come to Mass with me and to sit next to her and to share in her participation. All right. Um, going back to your question about the consecration, so I, th- I think there's a beautiful connection there with what, it, what Benedict, Pope Benedict develops in that third part of Sacramentum Caritatis, living the Eucharistic life. Um, so living the Eucharistic life is wanting to live my life in such a way that I can bring it and put it on the altar. I, and I know I can't, right? Because I can in many things, but in other things I can't because I can bring everything. So Pope Benedict highlights there's nothing authentically human that can't be brought to the altar. All right, but sin isn't authentically human. But mm-hmm. sin provides a great occasion, the best occasion actually for bringing something, and that is bringing a humble Repentance. contrition yeah. and mm-hmm. a desire, mm-hmm. right? A desire to be fed and nursed so that yeah. I can live more fully. And so that's actually the best occasion to bring um, anyway, and so all of that matches on to what does it mean to live consecration to Mary, right? Because the way I understand St. Louis de Montfort's consecration is I'm handing over to her my life in the sense that she knows better how to live. And therefore, I ought to be asking myself when I do something, um, what would Mary, what, asking her directly, Mary, what would you Say I'm buying a house. Which house do you like better? That means, is this house too grand for you? Or if I'm buying a car, you know, would you feel comfortable riding with me in this car? Or is this too fancy? Or maybe too dangerous or something? Um, and et cetera, doing my work. Is this how you want me to do it? Cleaning my, ha- my room, my house, my study, my... Uh, um, and so well, thinking that way is the same as thinking about doing my life, living my life so that I can offer it. Because that's how she lived, right? And that's how she wants to teach me to live my own life in such a way that it's more offerable and can be inserted into her son's offering. I like that. Yes, yeah, so that was a fantastic more offerable. Question. Does she now? Does she offer anything for me? Well, sure. She's doesn't. I guess sure. she she co-offered <laughs> underneath the cross, right? That's so, right. Mm-hmm. But like, so if I like. I've heard I've heard this uh, example given. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like if so I've I've done a Marian consecration mm-hmm. before, right? Cards on the table. I've done a Marian okay. consecration. Um, Same. And it's kind of like <laughs> it's kind of like the way I heard it described was it's like as if I only had a you know a half eaten apple uh-huh. to offer to Christ, but before I offer Christ my apple that is half eaten and the the reason I haven't eaten the other half is because there's a worm in it, you know? I give it to Mary and she puts it on a golden platter and surrounds it with other fruit. And then that's what gets offered to Christ, right? So it's kind of like this, I I, I don't know, elevation or, mm-hmm. you know, but making it more beautiful. But, but, but that's the thing. It's like, I, you know, I'm not totally sure. I, I don't know if I've ever lived it that way because in a sense, that didn't really make sense to me. Yeah. So I think that falls short, right? Because okay. what okay. she, c- consecration 
has got to be about having her teach me how my apple can be a better apple right, <laughs> with less worms in it. Right? Right, that's the right. whole point of it. But yes, that is, that's not to say that that's not happening. So it's right. a both and. And okay, so the okay. fact that Mary's offering it with me and right. her offering is more pleasing makes it a that, – that's precisely right. what we were talking about earlier when right. we were talking about offering our life not just in my God corner by myself. Mm-hmm. That's the communion offering my saints. life with Jesus and right. the whole parish with right. Jesus. Right. Right. And so that's she's pointing to the Eucharist. In other words, that idea in the Marian consecration, I think, is pointing to this bigger thing of offering my life Eucharistically. And Marian consecration ought to help me in the Eucharistic um, life. That that image, though, it, it resonates like I, I look at the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe and Juan Diego. And when he goes and he finds the roses that <laughs> she has... Mm-hmm. that she has provided, he starts picking them up and, and just rolling them up in his tilma and she stops him. Yeah. She stopped, wait, and rearranged the flowers so that they would look nice as he I carried them. I actually don't know the Typical mater- maternal, right? It, I love it, that It's detail. so great. Yeah. It's that that's, Mary that's what actually a mother does. stops him. He's just gathering up like flowers. So he's just got this this bunch and <laughs> there's, there's no order to them at all. He's just trying to hold them and she stops him, takes the flowers and arranges them so that they're all lined up nicely and really? neatly. So right. it creates an actual bouquet right, instead right. of the pile that he had right, picked up. Right, right, right. And so she now wants he's... to do that with our life. Exactly. Right? To yes. help us. Yeah. Yes. That's it's so beautiful. <laughs> she just wants to rearrange and put it all in order for us. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like And it's we... the order of charity that she wants, right? That's yes. what's so often lacking in our works. That right order of love. Yeah. So it's is if I were to ask for a, like a tangible example beyond the beyond the picking up plants and making it a bouquet, right? Um it's it's the reordering of my spirit, kind of. Right. That's right. Right. To um, what? Exactly. To my intentions are are. So there's there's the action towards us. I think Mary uh, intercedes for us so that our intentions will be purified, so that right. our our Which prayer I will then be purified. Offer. Right. Mm-hmm. But then she also takes our prayer and she purifies it herself. Mm-hmm. She makes it look more pleasing, and so she offers the prayer that we have offered. But now she she's cleaned it up on our okay. behalf. So it's kind so, of it's on both ends. I'm sorry, Doctor. Right. I keep, yeah, I, no, I that's so beautiful. I'm sorry, but is that really is it on both ends? It's like she prays for me, and therefore, right? Because I, I mean, for anyone both that might ends. feel uncomfortable, we're we are we are assuming God's grace in all of this, right? Like none of it is separated yeah. from that, right? Right. Um, but I I only specify that because I know a lot of people do have intellectual difficulties with Mary and consecration, you know, but it's, it's Mary prays for me. It's like, if she's all the way on the right, she's praying for me. I'm in the middle doing the thing that I now do better because of her prayers. And then when that gets offered to Christ, she also arranges them better on the left, <laughs> figuratively yeah. speaking. And, yeah. Right. But put Christ above you in in this image. So you've got Mary on, on this side who you're asking Mary Mary pray for me. She's interceding for you. It's Christ who's dumping that grace out upon right. you. And so then your offering is being made more perfect. Meanwhile, she's she's there knowing your prayer, right. knowing your knowing that which you are offering and then purifying it and showing that purified right. offering and to And that Jesus. arrangement is itself a, her prayer. It's all right. her intercession. Right. Yeah, and she by having a relationship with her 
that helps our intentions from the inside out to be right. rectified and purified. Right. Man. Isn't that I great? I say the rosary more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Doctor, in, in your work in seminary formation, uh, working with these with these men, not only to give them the sacramental theology understanding of, of the Eucharist, but then also connecting it to their liturgical celebration and to the way that they're going to offer Mass. Mm. Um, even though that's not your section right, of the that's, course. I, right? <laughs> I delegate though, that to Father Schumer. I like capable. the idea of you delegating it to him. I think that's good. We're, we're <laughs> but when, when you talk to the men about how they will offer the Mass, how they will celebrate Mass, mm -hmm. um, do you give them any advice, anything that, that you would say to them? Because there's there seems to be kind of a tension. Uh, on the one hand, if... If I'm the only one who can pray for the people in my life the way that I can pray for them mm -hmm. on, on a personal level, uh, Matt, as a husband, can is the only one who can pray as a husband for his wife. As a father, he's the only one as a father who can pray for his son because his son has no other father, right? And so there can be, I think, maybe a temptation. And this is, I think we've experienced for a long time in the life of the church for the, the priest to sort of want to pray as he can pray. As, as an individual. So if, oh. if Sam Kachuba uh -huh. is the one who wants to, to uh -huh. pray as only Sam Kachuba can, then he's maybe approaching the mass that way and, and offering the mass as only Sam Kachuba can offer mass, <laughs> which is a, a disaster, by the way. That, that's, that's, not the, that's not the way it should be. And so we, we kind of have to balance the, the importance of, of the priest as the celebrant with his personal offering uh -huh. and the fact that it doesn't matter how how much i try to disappear into the role my voice is always there so there's a certain right. cadence to my voice a certain way that i say certain words that something of myself is always going to be in there and yet what i find is that by not trying to insert myself into it too much while still being personally involved but while allowing the mass to be the mass, it becomes more perfectly the offering of Christ because right. the, the words of the mass are not mine. Absolutely. They're not, they're not mine to yeah. give. Furthermore, yeah. they become more perfectly the, the prayer of the church. I'm, I'm bound more closely to the, to the people who are praying at mass because I'm not praying my own prayer. I'm praying the prayer of the church. Right. So can I weigh in on that? Please so, weigh in, yeah. It, it seems to me it's a both and. Mm-hmm. That so I totally agree, but so just I'm up in the clouds here for a minute. Theoretically, it seems to me that the priest celebrating is at one and the same time acting in the person of Christ as ministerial priest, but you're also a member of the bride, and you don't stop being a member. In other words, baptism continues. Right. right? In other words, <laughs> holy orders doesn't take away baptism. Thanks be to God. Yeah. And so, so you're a member of the faithful, called to offer what's proper to you mm -hmm. as the same as all of the... So St. Augustine said this in a beautiful way. He said, when he was made bishop, there was something that terrified him, and that was what he was for them. But there was something that consoled him, and that is what he was with them. Right. And that's expressing this. And so, yes, I think it's absolutely right that insofar as you're celebrating the person of Christ, you want to disappear, right? Don't call attention to yourself by doing idiosyncratic things, right? And and focusing on your personality. No, you're to disappear so that Christ can be speaking through you and making present. But then your heart can't be absent, right? Your heart has to be just as present as that of all the faithful. 
in bringing all of your desires, which you'll have proper to you for your parish, right? For all of the concerns of priestly ministry, for, say, priestly fraternity, for, um, again, what's proper to your life. So I think it's a, a both and in, mm. in that way. Um, and yes, I think the faithful will be aided in offering by both aspects, right? The faithful will be aided insofar as you let Christ shine and not Father Sam, but right. the faithful will be aided by your bringing your heart to it because faith is contagious. Mm. I find the, the more that I, I bring my heart, but not my personality, right? the more I am able to celebrate well the more the the offering of the mass is is coherent mm -hmm. the, the more it, it makes sense when i let myself get in there in terms of personality not heart but just like personality mm -hmm. something always feels off something always seems to go wrong yeah you know and, and it's so, um, yeah that makes perfect sense it demands gifts demand humility and the humility isn't denying that you got the gift true that's false humility true humility is right. recognizing the gift but precisely that it's a gift well it's, it's and the it's the gift not to yours. be able to offer the mass right yeah. not not like it's not a talent that i have it's not right. something that i've i've learned like a, a great skill or developed it like there's there's a, a woman who after mass she'll, she'll come out and say hello and she always kisses my hand and in America, we don't have that custom, but she's right. she's not American, and so for her to kiss my hand is is not that well. She is she is an American now. She's she's a citizen, but she's not <laughs> from the United States, right? Uh, and when she kisses my hand, I, she she did it one day, and uh, her somebody was with her who had never seen that before. I was like, why why'd you do that? And she starts to explain. It. I said, it's it's fine, and she's you don't mind. I really don't mind. It's it's a it, it was a, a devotional truly reverent uh, thing that she was doing not because of me as an individual but because i am a priest and because of what i what i do and when you can step into that space where it's not about me it really it and it can't be about me uh then my own personal offering actually for me is is even more profound because that my own personal offering is is there and so i've Another thing the pandemic got me doing was because I had nothing but time since I wasn't distributing communion. Um, I, I could give a little bit more at every mass. I had I had another minute and a half that I could that I could give. So I started using Eucharistic Prayer One, the Roman Canon, uh, even for for daily mass. And I can't stop doing it now because the Roman Canon has the two pauses. There's the pause for the uh, for the intention for the living. And for the in, intention for the dead, and since basically my intention for the dead is is taken every day by whatever the the parish mass mm -hmm. intention is, uh, I have to pause there to pray for whoever the deceased person is that I've been asked to offer the mass for. But then I have that intention for the living, and so every day to pause just at that moment, it's a, it's such a brief pause, yeah. but it, to stop there. And pray for the living, and and there's there's two people in yeah, particular the... who I've been praying for every day, for like a year, and just to pause there is. Thank you for praying for me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but explain that to the faithful, right? Because yeah. the that way the faithful can join in at that moment. That's yeah. No, I, I you're right. I need to do that. That's 
have you been watching my live stream or something? <laughs> in the basement, in the God corner, he's watching my live stream. I was frantically flipping through pages in uh-huh. your book this entire okay. time because there was a quote. It's at the very beginning of the book about how humility is hiding your gifts and talents so far as it doesn't injure your neighbors, right? And that's what that's like mm. what you were talking about. How you said, and then you used the word talent, and I had a little like attack over here because I was like, <laughs> "That's the word I'm looking for." But but that struck me because I I heard on a uh, on an episode of of Pints with Aquinas once um, that I don't I don't know who the bishop was, but Matt Frad was speaking about how um, a bishop allowed his hands to be kissed, and his response to "Oh, that humble man," and and I was like, humble. I was like, I don't understand. I don't understand how that represents. I'm like, I trust that you're probably correct. You probably know more about humility than I do, you know. But that sounds worse than I meant it to. But, but I'll say something not humble. Matt Frad once told me I had a great beard. <laughs> <laughs> like no the, hiding that talent. No, the, the one time I had a chance to meet him, he was walking past me at, at some Catholic event, and he looked at me and said, "Great beard, father." <laughs> I was like. Yes. It was a pretty good Australian accent right, too. You got that. better at it. Yeah. 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 Um, but but like that that idea that humility hides itself insofar as it doesn't injure, you know, those around you and, and just how that applied to what you were speaking about, I was like, Man, I gotta find this quote and then I never did. So I brought it up anyway. <laughs> have I mentioned that Mad Frat story in the past on this podcast? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you have. Okay, so I'm just gonna keep doing it That's every right. so often so that maybe he'll come on the podcast too someday. To I've talk mentioned to us. I four think or five really times that Pittsburgh is the only town in America <laughs> where every sports team shares the same colors. <laughs> and I found that out because you told me on the air. <laughs> So now you just keep telling it as though it's a fact for me. Yeah. That's so perfect. These are our inside jokes. Doug. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now, okay. I, I want to change gears just slightly here because there's a question that has been on my mind for a while. It's come up uh, in several different places, even recently. I think that when Francis appointed um, na- uh, soon-to-be Cardinal Fernandez as the prefect for the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, in his in his letter, he encouraged uh, a cultivation of serious theology. And uh, at a local Catholic university here, there's a professor who who recently wrote an article, a very short article, uh, asking basically what is the state of Catholic theology at an academic level, you know, in the academy, especially in Catholic universities in the United States. And the the answer that seems to keep coming up whenever this question gets posed is there's there seems to be a, a a lack of recognizable names mm. out no, there. I don't think so. So this is this is my question. What do you think the state of Catholic theology is at the in the academy, especially in the United States, but in, in the world? Like, what, what do you see happening? Well, I don't know about the rest of the world. I know mostly the United States, but I see lots of good things happening. So just simply, I'm going to. Before answering about academic, let me say seminary theology, because mm. I think that's even more important, because that's our, when I came, so I, I was a convert, I came into the church, I was used to be an atheist, came in 1980, I was baptized in 1988 in the Anglican church, became, and went through RCA a few months later, and my wife and I were um, received into the Catholic church in 1989. I wanted to study theology, I didn't know anything, so I went to the local seminary. 
And I found to my dismay that there were huge problems in the Catholic Theological Academy that I had no idea about, you know, being a, having been an atheist. And, um, and I was very distressed. But, so I was sitting as a layperson in the local seminary where I used to live. And, um, and yeah, it wasn't good. It wasn't orthodox. And even I knew that just coming from atheism. And the seminarians were distressed by it. And um, today, seminaries in the United States are so much better, in such a better place than they were 30 years ago. And not just in academic formation, but in all four of the dimensions, right, that we speak about, um, intellectual, human, spiritual, and pastoral. And maybe the human formation is um, it's no less of, of the improvement. So I'm very encouraged in that. And then in the academy, I see, again, a huge flourishing of really excellent theologians. So I belong to um, lots of different theological associations, and I'm always edified by um, scholars old and young. Mm. So um, among, I'm a member of the Academy of Catholic Theology, founded by Matt, mostly by Matthew Levering, um, Father Thomas Joseph White. Um, so Matt Levering, is, he's a phenomenon. Um, and then I'm a member of St. Paul's um, Center for Biblical Theology. And in fact, this book is published by their Emmaus Academic. And this Eucharist is a course on a, from the St. Paul Center founded by Scott Hahn. And both Scott Hahn has, I mean, not only written countless books as Matt Levering, but both of them are spectacular mentors of younger scholars. And so Scott Hahn has, so I was speaking at a priest conference with him a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned that um, he has had 66 graduate students live in his house in the basement. Oh, my goodness. Over the years since they bought that house in Steubenville. And these have become, you know, professors teaching theology in the academy in all kinds of places, right? The, the Augustine Institute was probably dreamed of in, in Scott Hahn's basement and so many <laughs> other things. And, and Focus as well. Focus had its right. origin in Scott Hahn's basement. Um, and so there's been a dissemination of scholarship that is orthodox and um, built on a living, seeking holiness and a living relationship with God in prayer. Um, that um, is having huge effects. And it's too easy to get discouraged by looking out into the world and missing the good um, things that are happening. Uh, and so it's, that's my and plug. It's going further, too, because yeah. uh, Franciscan is starting a PhD program next year, doctor program. Wow. And, right. and and one of the primary goals is that those who graduate from that doctoral program can then go teach at other. Right. Schools. Yeah, and Ave Maria has been doing this. Right. Um, and so again, Matthew Levering and Father Lamb, he's passed away. Um, they did have done such great work. Um, mm. I mean, there's too many names, same, um, Mikhail um, Waldstein. Uh, he was my We've professor got, in a yeah. class Three weeks ago. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I it was, great it was admiration for him. Oh, he's yeah. he's brilliant. Yeah, his work on John Paul II. Yes, and it the was theology of the body. A fun little story is that I, uh, so I'm in the I'm in the masters in theology and Christian Christian ministry program at Franciscan. I usually don't worry, do Franciscan University online. of Stimville, Ohio. He knows the program that he's enrolled in. It's okay. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> I promise I do. It was just that I kind of got something stuck in my mouth. <laughs> So it like came out all <laughs> gross. Um, again, I apologize to the listeners that are wearing headphones. Um, but but <laughs> I I usually take my classes online. Um, 
but got a concussion the first week of class <laughs> and couldn't take my class online, but ironically could read. Reading was totally fine, but couldn't look at a screen for, for the life of me. Uh, and said, you know what? You should read when you have a concussion, Theology of the Body. And so I, p I picked up uh, Professor Waldstein's book <laughs> and then like one day into class realized who Professor Waldstein was. Just like didn't realize that he had written the introduction <laughs> and only came to realize that I was reading his book and he was my professor. You're the guy I, from my book. <laughs> when I went to go make a point from his book. <laughs> I was like, can I, can you elaborate your own words, I guess, for me, please. <laughs> but but it was But in awesome. different it words was... than the words that you wrote here. Yeah, just yeah. help, please. <laughs> yeah. But brilliant, man. Yeah. Let me take it one step back. So I think this flowering that we're seeing in the U.S., I mean, it's it's re has its root in a gift of God to the church, and that is John Paul II. Mm -hmm. I think he has been such a source of fruitfulness, and then the partnership he had with then Cardinal Ratzinger, right, as the head of the CDF, such a powerful collaboration. Mm -hmm. And then Pope Benedict succeeding John Paul II. That has been such a huge gift to the church, and we're seeing its fruit continue to expand. Mm. And there's reason to think that, um, yeah, to be, I'm a half full person by temperament, but I think there's founded, I mean, that's, um, it's part of the gospel, it seems to me. There's, I'm glad to hear you you talk about the seminary uh, as as one of the places in the academy that 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 the academic work that's being done by theologians teaching in seminaries is is of value. I think very often uh, the seminaries are not really considered as academic institutions. They're they're kind of put off to the side as uh, it's it's. There's academics, there's class, but it's different. It's not the same as what's done at the local Catholic university or something. And and I think the more we can break that down so that there's not that distinction, so we actually see that the, the work, I think, in many ways done at the seminaries is often more academically rigorous than what's being done at the at the universities. And right, because I, I find it very helpful teaching at a seminary to, have an, to help me bring what I'm my theology to prayer. Mm. And that's going to, I mean, without that, um, theolo I mean, theology has its foundation, right, in the... Faith-seeking understanding, right. We have to and, pray. And um, the more, so teaching in a theology helps me to put in context. All of this is um, meant, right, to grow the spiritual life, the human and the spiritual, precisely so it can be passed on to all the faithful. And that's the way... Every, in the academy, we ought to do theology as well. So this is exactly it. That in the academy, there's a way that we ought to do theology. And I wonder sometimes looking at, let's let's say your average Catholic university, uh, not a Franciscan where they mm -hmm. actually offer a theology major, but so many Catholic universities no longer offer theology as a major. They might have some courses in theology, but they don't have enough to, for it to be or a like major. Religious it, studies. It gets rolled into a religious studies uh, course or into a, a Catholic studies concentration. Often, not even a major. There's not a, a lot of Catholic universities don't even have a major in Catholic studies. They have a concentration, and so there's not a method for how theology is taught. There's there's rarely even an introduction to Catholic theology. Uh, if there's an intro course, it. It, it, what that means is that you have you have people who aren't being exposed to right the 
the essential theology courses. Like they're, yeah. they're not being given uh, a fundamental theology course. They're not really learning the credibility of revelation. They're not learning these, these other things. They're thrown into maybe an overview course or a, a world religions course or a, a religious studies course that studies more the, soci- the sociological phenomenon of religion as opposed to the, the theology, the content of the faith. And so uh, I'm glad to hear because I, I know about Scott Hahn. I know about the Augustine Institute and, and these places, and um, I'm I'm fortunate enough to to know some some of my own classmates uh, teaching at Kendrick Glennon Seminary. <laughs> you know, to to know some some guys who are are doing some of this this really good work, but to know that there are some that there are people out there who are, are being strong. But how do we? I hate to use the word, but I'm going to say it this way anyway. How do we infiltrate the Catholic university so that they start offering theology again? So they start teaching this because there is, do you want a high five? Or <laughs> yeah. you, oh, okay. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. I, I, the hand was up. I couldn't tell if he was telling me to stop, like stop talking. That's enough. Or if you want to no. like a high five. No. There's, <laughs> if we started teaching theology according to a method, if we just introduced a little bit of logic into the into the methodology, I feel the same way about philosophy. I get really frustrated when I, I, I was a philosophy major in college because I was in college seminary. And I remember going from theology class to theology class. And at one point there was a guy in, it was, you know, I was at a Catholic university doing my undergrad degree, but I was living at the seminary. And uh, during one of my philosophy classes, there was a guy who was also in another class that I was taking. And it was his like second philosophy class for the core requirement. So he had to have two philosophy classes. And so he tapped me on the shoulder on the first day of class and he goes, I love philosophy. I said, really? He goes, yes, yeah, second class I took in it. And he was, he didn't know that I was a philosophy major yeah. and that I was in like my eighth philosophy class at that point. <laughs> so he's, yeah, I love philosophy. You can just say anything and no one can tell you you're wrong. <laughs> and I was like, I don't, I don't know how to tell you this, but that's wrong. <laughs> you're, that's <laughs> you're, <right>. you're wrong. <laughs> that's that's not correct. And he didn't believe me until we we had to hand in a paper a couple of weeks later, and uh, at, we handed it in, and we each had to, as we handed it in, give a thirty second snapshot of what we wrote about. So I gave my thirty second snapshot, and the professor goes, "Okay, let's let's see how that went." Takes my paper. Then this guy hands in his paper and gives his thirty second snapshot. And the professor just looks at him and goes, this is going to be a disaster and walks away because <laughs> the guys, he, he made no sense for 30 seconds. I thought it was great, but like, we, we don't do this with philosophy. We don't teach, we don't teach people how to think. We don't give them survey courses in philosophy that show them the history of philosophy. Yeah. And so then absent a history of philosophy, they jump from like philosophy 101 to existentialism. And then they think that n- nothing is true and yeah. like, they can just do whatever they want. Well, that's they... how I started, Father. So <laughs> I, I, was, I was an atheist. I was at Washington University in St. Louis. And my first um, philosophy class was on Nietzsche. Oh. And so I, I bought the complete works, ended up going, studying junior year abroad in Germany, we bought the complete works of Nietzsche in German. Right. I haven't consulted it recently. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's just totally, we do things totally um, upside down. Yeah. Yeah. I I read an article when there was um, one famous theologian in in the US, when she retired, she gave an interview and and in the interview they they said, um, asked her like, 
how she felt teaching undergrads today. And she said, well, I recently had a student. He was a freshman in college. And uh, he, he came to me after class with some questions. He said he didn't really understand his Catholic faith. So I gave him this book by Hans Kung. And, oh and I told him to read it. And I'm thinking, what kind of crazy person gives a freshman in college a book by Hans Kung? The Germans are still trying to figure out what Hans Kung said, and yeah. he said it in German. You know, <laughs> like he's and he's also not a, a very credible theologian. He's he's got right. some very questionable views, and he's he's speaking in extremely complicated things. Yeah. This guy doesn't understand something. Hans Kung isn't going to explain a thing to him. I'm thinking that's just bad teaching. Right. And I get I get critical of that. I mean, I'm East Coast, so yeah. like it's so gonna, I did the it's same thing. That was at the beginning <laughs> of our conversion experience. One of my first books was Hans Kung, Why I'm Being a Christian or Why Be a Christian. Something that's a fact. And my impression after finishing the book is, hmm, why is he a Christian? But um, so it <laughs> so it, it didn't help. It me, didn't answer you but any questions. It showed me that there was a problem right yeah. out there in the academy. But again, I'm really encouraged today because people at the seminary nobody asks about that. Right? They mm, want right. real um, meat that can help them to, um, to teach the faithful. Yeah. To me, there's such a need in the church for adult faith formation. Yes. Right? We think that we got enough uh, preparing for confirmation. And uh, yeah, it's got to be a lifelong thing. Just, so I find it's very helpful to relate it to what do I do for my professional work? Mm -hmm. right? So a doctor has to keep on studying and so our whole life, if I do that for a secular profession, how much more I ought to do that for the royal priesthood, right? And mm. for living a Eucharistic life. I like how you brought it back to the Eucharist. That, that was a good move there. Way to go. That's, that's really clever. <laughs> you drifted too far. <laughs> I know. I, it's good. It's good. There is never too far. No. <laughs> well, that's, that's great. Dr. Feingold, thank you. Thank this you. Is, this is so that good. That was great fun. Uh, love to talk with you about this. Um, so the book is The Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion. It's available from the Emmaus Academic. Uh, so check out St. Paul Center for Biblical Studies, and, and uh, you'll find it's it It's available as a course as well. Oh, tell us about the course then. Yeah, so the G course is the taken from the book. Um, so you can um, the viewers can find out about that by going to the St. Paul Center uh, website. And um, look up Emmaus Academy, and there are at least a dozen courses, um, Scott Hahn and mm -hmm. John Bergsma and many others, and they're all excellent. And what they're doing is taking these big, fat books and making them more accessible to the faithful. And so um, my course on the Eucharist is 12 talks of about a half an hour. I had trouble keeping myself to 30 minutes, some are <laughs> 35, but, um, but basically 12 segments of 30 to 35 minutes um, covering the the highlights of the book mm. and kind of going right. through what we've spoken about. Can I ask you a question about the uh, Emmaus Academy? Yeah. Do, do you have on Emmaus Academy um, a, a course for uh, RCIA, for instruction for, for people uh, coming into the church? I don't think so, not at the moment. That's mm. a great idea. Um, yeah, I love teaching. So I teach RCA every year here in St. Louis at the cathedral. Um, Your cathedral is gorgeous. That must be gorgeous. one heck of an RCIA. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can only imagine. Your cathedral, though, is beautiful. Yeah. And I'm doing an, um, a Zoom RCA for people from a Jewish background. So if you know wow. anyone who's interested, they can find out at the um, Googling Association of Hebrew Catholics. 
And I actually have a whole series of free talks on that website, Association of Hebrew Catholics, because oh, I come from amazing. a Jewish background. My dad yeah. was a Jewish atheist, so I grew up an atheist, but from a Jewish wow. perspective. Wow. We should have you back. You could just talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much for, for giving us your time. This is, this is amazing. Yeah, thank you for uh, having just, me. It's just been a great, great pleasure. Yes, for us too. Believe me. Well, this is The Tangent. I'm Father Sam Kachuba. I'm Matt Sparazzo. And our guest today was Dr. Lawrence Feinkel. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to further support The Tangent, please consider subscribing or following on your preferred platform following us at the tangent underscore catholic on instagram or even donating at veritascatholic.com see you next time god bless